Thank you for listening to Franklin City Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information on Franklin City Church, please check us out at www.franklincitychurch.com. Verses 10 through 14. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Let's pray. God, as we come before you this morning and open up your word. We ask that you would give us ears to hear. We ask that you would reawaken any complacency in our hearts, that you would stir our love for you. And God, that we would leave here changed not because of anything that I have to say, but because of your word. And so, God, we ask that all this would be done and spoken for your glory, not mine, that this would be done in your power and not in my power, God. So we ask that you would speak and that we would listen. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, go ahead, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up uh, to Exodus chapter 14, Exodus 14 in verse 10, and this morning we are continuing our Advent series called Jesus the True and Better, and typically the way we will preach here at this church is that we will preach verse by verse through books of the Bible, but occasionally we will have a topical sermon or a topical series, which is what we are in right now, but let me give you a little bit of a roadmap as to where we are going in our Sunday morning gatherings and what we will be preaching through. So after Christmas, we are going to enter into a season of intentional prayer. Um, Now, we always want to be a people year-round who are a praying people, but a couple times of of the year, we're going to take a few weeks and be really intentional in prayer and hopefully re-encourage and reignite our love and our desire to be a people of prayer. And so... Starting December 31st, New Year's Eve, we are going to enter into a season of 21 days of prayer, where for 21 days we are being intentional as a church corporately to be in prayer, because we believe that 2018 will be such a foundational and such a, a, a good year for us. We want to, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, before we cast too much more vision or make too many more plans, we want to stop at the beginning of the year and just seek the Lord and, and cry out to him and make sure we are truly following his will for us and not our own. And so for 21 days, uh, we are going to be intentional in prayer. Now, what that's going to look like here on Sunday mornings is that means we are going to be preaching through the Lord's Prayer from Matthew 6, and then our sermons are going to be a little bit of short, a little bit shorter, okay? Um, 
which is good. I didn't hear any amens. That's good. Our sermons are going to be a little bit shorter, and that will allow for more corporate times of prayer during our Sunday morning service, okay? And then our city groups midweek are going to be focused on prayer, and then we're going to have times a gathering here at the church throughout the week uh, where we're going to pray as well. And then after the 21 days of prayer, we're going to start into the Gospel of Mark. So that will be the next book of the Bible, that then we just preach verse by verse through the book of Mark until we finish that book. But today we are in the midst of a season called Advent. And Advent is the season leading up to Christmas. The word Advent means arrival. And so it is the season that we remember and in many ways are reenacting Jesus's first Advent, his first arrival, when God put on flesh and was born in Bethlehem in a manger. Now, it is also a season where we are longing for and anticipating Jesus's second Advent, his second arrival, when he returns to restore all things. And the phrase that we've been using here is that we want this Christmas season to be a true and better Christmas season because we realize that many times, especially in our culture, we are celebrating the advent or arrival of all other things except Christ. So many times we are celebrating and anticipating the arrival of gifts or anticipating the advent or arrival of times with family or anticipating the advent or arrival of a break from work or holiday meals or fun traditions or fun movies. And you see, we've been taken captive by all the, the wrong advents or arrivals, but here we want to be taken captive by the advent or arrival of Christ. And so the way that we are trying to do this, by God's grace, is in our Sunday morning sermons, we're trying to be captivated by Christ by looking back into the Old Testament and looking at some people in the Old Testament and seeing how they were foreshadowing and pointing to Jesus' arrival. And a quote that I've shared the last couple of weeks that I want to mention again this morning is from a pastor, Martin DeHaan, who once said this. He said, if we search long enough, we shall find upon every page of scripture standing somewhere in the shadow, the outline of the central person of the book, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so two weeks ago, we talked about Adam and we looked at how we saw shadows and glimpses of Jesus through Adam. We saw that Jesus then is the true and better Adam, and that what was lost in the garden by Adam was won back by Jesus, and that although Adam failed to trust God perfectly in the garden, Jesus did trust God perfectly in a garden, and now his obedience is credited to us. And then last week we looked at Abraham, and we saw, like Tim Keller has said in that video, that Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void to create a new people of God. And then this morning we're going to look at Moses. And again, not a comprehensive study on Moses, uh, but we are going to be focusing in on some ways that Moses was pointing to and foreshadowing Jesus' arrival. And there are so many pointers to Jesus all throughout Moses' life and the events surrounding Moses' life that we won't have time to touch on all of them because there are so many comparisons, similarities, and parallels between Moses and Jesus. So here are just a few to give you an idea of what I'm talking about. So when Moses was a baby, Pharaoh had given an order to kill all Hebrew boy babies. When Jesus was a baby, King Herod had given an order to kill all Hebrew boy babies. Baby Moses was hidden away in Egypt in a basket. Mary and Joseph escaped to Egypt to hide baby Jesus. Moses willingly left his palace and royal courts for the sake of his people, Jesus, the royal son of God, willingly left the glory of the heavenly courts to come to earth for the sake of his people. 
Moses contended with the magicians of Egypt and displayed God's authoritative, miraculous power over them. Jesus contended with evil spirits and demonstrated that same miraculous, authoritative power. Moses was often rejected by his people. Jesus was rejected by his people. Prior to delivering Israel from their bondage, Moses instituted the Passover. Just prior to, the, to Jesus delivering his people from their bondage, he instituted communion. Moses rescued Israel from the bondage of slavery in Egypt. Jesus rescues his people from their slavery and bondage to sin. Moses fed people miraculously in the wilderness with manna from God. Jesus fed thousands miraculously in the wilderness with five loaves and two fish and was himself the bread of life. Moses interceded for the nation of Israel and even was willing to offer up his life on their behalf. Jesus, too, intercedes for his people and did offer up his life on our behalf. When Moses looked at the promised land that was to be conquered, he sent out 12 men as spies. When Jesus looked at the earth that was to be won back, he sent out his 12 apostles. And I could keep going on and on, but due to time, we will stop there. But we will see that the life of Moses was foreshadowing and pointing to someone better who was to come. And so this morning, we're going to focus in and look at how God used Moses as a rescuer, as a communicator, and as a mediator. And then we will see how Jesus is the true and better Moses, how Jesus is the true and better rescuer, communicator, and mediator. Well, let's first look at how Jesus is the true and better rescuer. So the nation of Israel was enslaved by the Egyptians. The people of God, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were being oppressed and enslaved in Egypt. And you remember Abraham, like we talked about last week. I mean, God had said to him that he was going to make him into a great nation, that in him all the families of the earth were going to be blessed. And then here they were, enslaved and oppressed in Egypt. And Exodus 2.24 says this, It said, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And so God raised up a rescuer named Moses to rescue them from their enslavement and oppression in Egypt. And it took God working miracles through Moses, sending plagues onto Egypt for Pharaoh to finally allow God's people to leave. And it was the last plague that was the final straw, where Pharaoh finally agreed to let them go. The last plague was the death of all the firstborn of the Egyptians. But God's people were to put the blood of a lamb on their doorpost so that the angel of the Lord would pass over and their firstborn children would be spared. And so Pharaoh finally lets them leave, the whole nation of Israel, who has now grown to be a great multitude. When they came to Egypt, they were about 70, and when they leave Egypt, they're about 600,000, okay? So it's a great multitude of people now leaving Egypt. They set out from Egypt. God is going to use Moses to now lead them to the promised land, and as they come upon the Red Sea, Pharaoh changes his mind. Pharaoh gets upset, and he regrets letting God's people go, so he rounds up some chariots to go after the nation of Israel, and here's where we pick up the story in Exodus 14. So look if you have your Bible at Exodus 14, verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? 
Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Now, before you start getting too critical of God's people here, just remember that you and I, we would have acted the same way, and in many times, we do act the same way, okay? But I mean, here they were. God had sent them a rescuer. He had miraculously delivered them from Egypt by sending signs and wonders and miracles and plagues, and here now, they have quickly forgotten God. They have quickly started to doubt They said, Moses, you brought us out of Egypt to die out here? Isn't this why we said just leave us alone like we were content being slaves? At least we were alive. It would have been better for us just to stay. Now they're going to kill us or they're going to re-enslave us and be even more harsh with us. And look what Moses says. He said, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. He said, look to God. Stop looking back at Egypt and look to God and see the salvation that he will work for you. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Just be quiet and look to God. He will work salvation for you today. But here's where God's people and you and I get it wrong. We often are focused and enthralled by what we want to be rescued from instead of being focused and enthralled by our rescuer. You don't get out of Egypt by focusing on Egypt. You don't get delivered from Egypt by being enthralled by the Egyptians. Moses said, look to God and see the salvation he will work for you. God's people were not going to be delivered from Egypt by focusing on Egypt. They were going to be delivered by looking to God and trusting that the Lord would deliver and rescue them. You see, in the same way the people of God were enslaved by the Egyptians, humanity, apart from Christ, is enslaved to sin. And in the same way that God raised up Moses as a rescuer, we have seen that Jesus is the true and better Moses, that Jesus is the true and better rescuer. So hear these words from Revelation 1, verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. He has freed us by his blood. The people of God, they went surrounded by the Egyptians. If they were looking to their rescuer and trusting in his goodness and greatness, then they would have seen that God didn't allow the Egyptians to come back after them just to scare them or frighten them or test them. No, God allowed the Egyptians to come back after them because God was showing his goodness and greatness by drawing out the oppressors so that he could definitively defeat them. You see, God is such a good rescuer, he doesn't just get us out or away from whatever is enslaving us. If God just got his people away from Egypt, there was always a chance that the Egyptians could have come back to recapture and re-enslave them. But no, God showed his greatness in rescuing by drawing out the Egyptians, 
by then miraculously parting the Red Sea, allowing his people to pass through. And then when the Egyptians tried to pass through, the waters came crashing back on them and burying them at the bottom of the sea. You see, in the same way with Jesus, our rescuer, he didn't just get us away from the sin that oppressed us. No, he definitively defeated it and buried it. And when we baptize new believers, isn't this what we are reminding ourselves with the imagery of baptism? That our sin that has enslaved us has been buried with Christ. It is at the bottom of the Red Sea with the Egyptians. And when we are raised to new life, now we can have joy. We can have joy following the Lord to the promised land with no fear that our captors are going to come back to re-enslave us. We now walk in the freedom that has been accomplished for us by our true and better rescuer. And it was a freedom that we could not accomplish ourselves. It was a freedom that couldn't be earned or obtained by our own power. We were enslaved, and we needed someone who was not enslaved, someone from the outside, to come rescue us and bring us freedom. While, while waiting in a Nazi prison cell in 1943, a few weeks before Advent, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a friend. He said, a prison cell in which one waits, hopes, and does various unessential things is completely dependent on the fact that the door of freedom has to be opened from the outside. It is not a bad picture of Advent, he says. The door of freedom has to be opened from the outside. God put on flesh. He entered in to rescue and open the door to freedom. We now walk in freedom that has been accomplished for us by our true and better rescuer. Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. Well, God used Moses as a rescuer of his people. He also used Moses as a communicator to his people. So God uses Moses to rescue his people from Egypt, and now he's ultimately leading them to the promised land, but he's going to take them through the wilderness first, and they arrive at Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, God speaks with Moses, and he gives Moses the law. He gives Moses the Ten Commandments and other instructions and laws that the people were to obey and observe. Now, this part of the Bible can often get confused or misunderstood. God wasn't just giving a list of rules like a strict taskmaster or like a, a cruel, strict father. No, through the law, this is what God was doing. God was communicating his glory to his people. Through the law, God was communicating his glory to his people. When Moses came down from being with God, he even had to wear a veil over his face because even the reflection of some of the glory of being in God's presence was too much for the people to handle. So listen, the law that was being given to Moses, it was not a game changer and it didn't change the rules of salvation, right? Remember, even with Abraham, we remember last week that Abraham was saved through faith, right? That he was saved by grace through faith, that he was justified by faith. So is the law now a game changer? Does it change the rules? We'll, we'll see in Galatians 3, 17, hear these words. It says, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. 
Salvation has always been by grace through faith. The law was not a list of rules that if God's people met, then he would love them and save them. We often think this way, though, right? We often get things out of order, and if you think that way, you've gotten God's story out of order. And the way that I've remembered it, and it's always stuck with me, I've heard it said this way before, that the lamb came before the law. Lamb before law, okay? Lamb referring to the Passover lamb in Egypt, a picture of Christ, right? That's the lamb. It came before they received the law at Mount Sinai. Well, what does this mean? It means that we've already seen God deliver and rescue and save his people, not because they followed all his rules, but because God had set his affections upon them and called them out to be his people, So it wasn't like he sent Moses to Egypt first with the Ten Commandments and say, hey, people of Israel, if you follow these Ten Commandments, then God will save you. No, it was, I will deliver you from Egypt. Now let me show you how to respond to your salvation. Let me give you the law. Let me show you some commands that are, in fact, blessings because I'm the author of life and I know how life works best. Let me give you some laws that show and reveal and communicate my glory and my holiness to you. And let me then introduce you to the sacrificial system so I can introduce you to this idea that you're going to need a substitute. So Moses, through the law, was communicating God's glory to God's people. And in the same way that Moses communicated from Mount Sinai, Jesus communicated God's glory to God's people in the Sermon on the Mount. So in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is like, you've heard it said you shall not murder, but I say to you, if you're even angry with a brother in your heart, you are liable for judgment. And then Jesus said, you've heard it said that you shouldn't commit adultery, but I say to you, if you even lust after a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. And so he goes on and on, you've heard it said, but I say to you, you've heard it said, but I say to you, and it seems like he just keeps upping the game. He keeps raising the bar, so to speak. If the law that Moses gave was a list of rules that you could obey to earn your salvation, it would seem like Jesus keeps upping the requirements and making the requirements seem almost impossible, and then it culminates with this at the end of Matthew 5. Matthew 5, 48, Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, even if you made it through the law of Moses, even if you made it through the Sermon on the Mount and felt like you could keep all the rules, I think Jesus crushes your hopes of earning your own salvation with this statement, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So listen, last week we talked about how Abraham was justified by faith, how he was declared right before God by faith, and that we are saved by grace through faith. So what about the law given to Moses? Is it a game changer? Does it change the rules? No, it's not a game changer. What it does is it reveals to us just how bad at the game we actually are. And it communicates just how glorious and holy God is. And it points us to our need for a substitute and a mediator. 
So let's say you're playing basketball, okay? Let's say you're playing five on five. You're in a packed out stadium. The crowd's going wild, okay? But let's say you're blindfolded. Someone's got a blindfold on you, and so you're trying to play the game blindfolded. So every now and then you get the ball, you're dribbling, you're passing, you shoot it in the direction you think the hoop is at, and the crowd is going crazy. So you just assume you're doing really well, right? You're running up and down, you're sweating, you're dribbling, you're passing, you're shooting, and the crowd is going crazy. In your reality, you are just crushing it. You are just just totally demolishing whoever you might be playing. But then someone graciously takes the blindfold off and you look up at the scoreboard and you see you are losing 100 to zero. You see, you've actually been passing the ball to the wrong team. You've actually been shooting on the wrong hoop. You've actually been dribbling the ball out of bounds, and you thought the crowd was cheering for you, but you realize you're on the visiting team, and they've actually been cheering for the team that is crushing you. The law being given to Moses was not a game changer. No, what the law did was it took the blindfold off and revealed to us just how bad at the game that we actually are. It showed us just how great and glorious and holy that God is. And it showed us how in our sin, just how badly we fall short. But it also, it also shows us our need for a substitute. And not just our need for a substitute, but it points to Jesus who is ready to sub into the game and win the game on our behalf. The law helps us realize that we need a sub. It points us to the gospel. The law prepared us for the riches of God's grace. When you were blindfolded, you didn't realize how awesome that substitute was or that you even needed a substitute. And let me share with you this morning a quote from R.C. Sproul. And R.C. Sproul passed away this last Thursday, and he is now in glory. His his joy is is full. He is with Jesus. But R.C. Sproul is one of the great theologians, pastors, writers, teachers, authors, whose teachings have just been so influential in my own life and in my, my joy and the sovereignty of God and God's holiness and the doctrines of grace. And so uh, here's, here's one of his quotes this morning. He says, A substitute has appeared in space and time, appointed by God himself to bear the weight and the burden of our transgressions, to make expiation of our guilt, so to make amends, take away our guilt, and to propitiate the wrath of God, to appease the wrath of God on our behalf. This is the gospel. This is the gospel, that a substitute has appeared, appointed by God, to bear the weight of our transgressions, to take away our guilt, and to appease the wrath of God. The law prepared us for the riches of God's grace. The law is not a game changer. What it does is it reveals just how bad at the game we are how glorious God is, and it points us to our need for a substitute and a mediator. Jesus is the true and better Moses, meaning he is the true and better rescuer. He is the true and better communicator, and he is ultimately the true and better mediator. Well, what is a mediator? A mediator is someone who stands between two people and helps resolve a conflict, They help reconcile two parties. They intercede. They intervene on someone else's behalf. 
We see God use Moses as a mediator through him communicating the law and instituting the sacrificial system as a way to temporarily mediate between sinful humanity and a holy God. And while the sacrificial system did provide some temporary mediation, it made it evident that there would need to be one day a definitive and permanent sacrifice made and that there would need to be once and for all a a definitive mediation and reconciliation between God and humanity. The law showed us that we needed a mediator We needed someone to stand in the gap between God and humanity and resolve the broken relationship that sin had caused. And Jesus, the Lamb of God, offered up himself on the cross to be the sacrifice for our sins. Moses served as a temporary mediator between God and his people, but was always pointing to the true and better mediator, Jesus, who was to come. And Jesus, being fully God and fully man, was the perfect mediator who could fully understand how to reconcile both parties. St. Augustine once said this. He said, God became a man for this purpose. Since you, a human being, could not reach God, but you can reach other humans, you might now reach God through a man. And so the man Christ Jesus became the mediator of God and human beings. God became a man so that following a man, something you are able to do, you might reach God, which was formerly impossible to you. God became a man so that following a man, something you are able to do, you might reach God, which was formerly impossible to you. 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6 says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Jesus, the true and better mediator, did not just mediate by giving external laws and requiring frequent temporary sacrifices. No, he gave himself as the ultimate sacrifice and ransom for his people so that God could once again dwell with man. And so now the law is not just some external list of commands, but now the law has been written in our hearts. And this is what Jeremiah was talking about in Jeremiah 31, 33. It says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Jesus is the true and better mediator because when he mediated, the temple curtain was torn in two, and God could once again dwell with us, and so now the Spirit of God can live within us. And so his law, his blessings, his glory, his goodness is written on our hearts, and he is our God, and we are his people. You see, I've heard it said that when the law was just outside of us, when it was just an external list of commands, it was like a a thermometer, but when it is inside of us, it's more like a thermostat. Okay, do you follow? Like an external list of commands, it only showed to serve us that something was wrong. It was a thermometer. It showed us that we had a fever. It showed us that we were sick. It showed us that something was wrong. But in and of itself, there was no power to make us better or to cure us. It was merely diagnostic. It was not therapeutic. But when Jesus, our mediator, 
His substitutionary death on a cross made it possible for God to dwell with us. It made possible for his spirit to live within us and for his law to be written on our hearts. And so now the law is not just a thermometer, it is a thermostat. And yes, can diagnose that the temperature is off, but now through the gospel there is power to actually change and adjust and correct the temperature of our hearts. And in the book, A Gospel-Centered Life, which we studied this summer as a church, Pastor Bob Thune, he said this. He said, we are unable to do what the law commands us to do, but Jesus did it for us. And because he now lives in us by his spirit, we are enabled to do it, not from obligation, but from delight. So every command in scripture points us to our own inadequacy, it magnifies the good and holy nature of God, and it causes us to look to Jesus, the one who forgives our disobedience and enables our obedience. In other words, the law drives us to Jesus, and Jesus frees us to obey the law. Let me read that quote again, because it's good, okay? We are unable to do what the law commands us to do, but Jesus did it for us. And because he lives in us by his spirit, we are enabled to do it, not from obligation, but from delight. So every command in scripture points us to our own inadequacy. It magnifies the good and holy nature of God and causes us to look to Jesus, the one who forgives our disobedience and enables our obedience. In other words, the law drives us to Jesus and Jesus frees us to obey the law. The law drives us to Jesus. And Jesus frees us to obey the law. Jesus is the true and better Moses. He is the true and better rescuer. He is the true and better communicator. He is the true and better mediator. And in concluding this morning, let me encourage you guys to continue your study in looking for Jesus on every page of Scripture. Because when we do, we gain a proper biblical theology and our understanding of God's story of redemption is made more complete and whole. You see, if you did not look at how Moses was foreshadowing and pointing to Jesus' arrival, or if you did not look at Adam or Abel or Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or Joseph or David, if you did not look at how they were all pointing to Jesus' arrival, if you read your Bible and you don't recognize that the main hero of the book is Jesus, then you could very easily think that the Old and New Testament are just two separate things. You can very easily think that the God of the Old Testament was one way, the God of the New Testament was the other. You could think that, the, that the God's people of the Old Testament were saved by works and that God's people in the New Testament are saved by grace. But listen, God's people in the Old Testament were not saved by works. That is not true. And Dr. Dr. J. Alec Motyer, who was a theologian and professor, was once asked a question by a student about the differences between the people of God and the Old and New Testament. And this was his answer. Dr. Meyer insisted that we were all one people of God. Then he asked us to imagine how the Israelites under Moses would have given their testimony if someone asked for it. They would have said something like this. We were in a foreign land, in bondage, under the sentence of death. But our mediator, the one who stands between us and God, came to us with the promise of deliverance. We trusted in the promises of God, took shelter under the blood of the Lamb, and he led us out. 
Now we are on the way to the promised land. We are not there yet, of course, but we have the law to guide us. And through blood sacrifice, we also have his presence in our midst. So he will stay with us until we get to our true country, our everlasting home. And then Dr. Motyer concluded, now think about it. A Christian today could say the same thing almost word for word. We were in a foreign land, in bondage, under the sentence of death. But our mediator, Jesus, who stands between us and God, came to us with the promise of deliverance. We trusted in the promises of God, took shelter in the blood of the lamb, and he led us out. And now we are on our way to the promised land. We are not there yet, but we have God's word to guide us, and we have his presence to dwell with us. And so he will stay with us until we get to our true country, our everlasting home. God's people have always been saved by grace through faith and by the blood of the Lamb. Fear not, stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. Praise God for the advent of Jesus. Praise God that he is the true and better Moses. Praise God that Jesus is the true and better rescuer. That he is the true and better communicator. And that he is our true and better mediator. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you did come to earth, that you opened the door to freedom from the outside, God, that you rescued us, that you showed us your glory, and that you pointed us to yourself, our mediator and substitute. God, may we trust and rest and rely and depend on this work that you have done. God, I ask that you would forgive us for trying to work for our salvation or trying to earn a right standing before you. But Lord, may we rest and enjoy that that work has been accomplished by you. We love you, Jesus, in your name, amen.